Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. This is our Friday show, and I'm joined by the whole crew, including Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, hello, and how are you? I am doing great. It is the robotics event today, and everyone will be hearing this the day after. So, haha, we're here, yes. and it's amazing. And Marianne, the site went down literally <laughs> the moment we got on Google Meet to record this, and that was not good for, for anybody. Yeah, it was not good at all, but the reason for it, because there was so much interest in the robotics event, that was good. It's a flex. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a flex, but also kind of a sad one. Like, yay, everyone showed up. And then also, why couldn't our site handle that? We do a lot of traffic. So <laughs> yeah, true. I have questions, but instead we have a podcast to get through. And today we are going to be talking about the Amazon acquisition of One Medical. That was big breaking news Thursday morning. Lots to say there. We're going to talk about a couple of deals of the week, including our former employer, Crunchbase. So caveats are coming up. Archive and Foresight. Then we're going to talk about a bevy of venture funds, if you will. Talk about Modsy and the shutdown. And then we'll close with a little a bit of notes on technology and Ukraine. So geopolitics will wait until the end, but we're going to kick off with, okay, so the parent company of AWS, which also owns Kindle and Amazon Basics, is now buying One Medical. My first question yeah. is, is were we shocked, I suppose? Okay. I mean, I knew that One Medical was like an acquisition target. I don't think that it occurred to me that Amazon would be the acquirer. Like now that it's happening, I can see why Amazon would want to buy One Medical, but it's a little bit distressing for those of us that actually use One Medical to imagine that all these things that we liked about it might change. I'm a little more optimistic than that right now. I'm a new One Medical customer, like literally one week old. I think because Amazon isn't, I guess it doesn't seem like they need to have One Medical be a super profitable arm thanks to the AWS dream that they have. I'm a little like, oh, maybe things won't change as dramatically. Maybe that's optimistic. I don't know if Amazon has necessarily proven it either way yet in terms of acquiring something and making it go to hell because Whole Foods, for example, has gone feel, to hell. Oh, I was going to say, I don't think I've like, I mean, I'm not an avid Whole Foods shopper, but to me, it doesn't feel like they like completely changed things. It, it just seems like it is part of the Amazon universe. Well, okay. So I'm going to put on my bougie hat. And as a person who's been shopping at Whole Foods for too long and has spent once in a blue moon, like $14 on three tomatoes, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time there. And there's two Whole Foods in Providence. The one closer to me is slowly becoming what feels like a distribution point for Amazon. And so it's being kind of turned into a warehouse. And there's more and more space in the store that's being taken up by people who work for Amazon who are shopping in their own store and then clogging up the lines and the aisles and taking up tons of space for racks of things. Like, get a fucking warehouse. Like, oh, I completely this? disagree. I think it's so convenient to like be able to return my Amazon package <laughs> while picking up fresh orange juice and now potentially getting a doctor's appointment. So yeah, I don't know. The integration, do. the oh integration will be kind of cool. Go grocery shopping and see your doctor at the same time. I mean, there was a tweet that was kind of interesting where it was like, there is a potential. And again, I'm taking the bullish route clearly, but there was, it was, it was like a combination of like diet based healthcare too. Like, what does it mean to have like your doctor and where you feed yourself integrated into one place? Like that would be a dream, but I don't know if, if that's necessarily even the goal. We don't know any details yet other than they bought it for 3.9 billion. Yeah. We're wildly speculating. Yeah. Here. Mar Marianne, aren't you really excited about being able to go to the doctor and have them say, have you tried new fish paste oil now in stock at Whole Foods? I yeah, mean not, like, no, not really. I'm not. I'm not. I, I will sign into Amazon at the Whole Foods POS kiosk so I can save like 48 cents by sharing my data with Amazon <laughs> to get a discount. But like, I feel gross when I do it and I kind of want Amazon to f 
off. And for example, they own Ring, which is a home security thing. It's doorbells and whatnot. And they just like give that information to the police, as far as I can tell, with very limited opposition. And I don't want a company that has a direct conduit to law enforcement, especially in a post-Roe America, to be absorbing more healthcare information from regular folks. What I would like is for antitrust regulation to prevent three companies from owning the entire economy. That's what I would like. It is indeed everywhere. And I, I think it's a really good point. Like the data privacy or data questions yeah. around it was, I think, the first reaction other than like the dreamy scenarios in the future. The first reaction is, does this feel good? And does it feel safe and comfortable? Yeah, I don't know. One other quick point, but I had covered another kind of a healthcare marketplace recently called Sesame and Google Ventures, I think GV was a, an investor in that company. And we noted that it also was an investor in One Medical. So I'm kind of intrigued that now One Medical has exited. And now it kind of makes a little more sense why maybe the investor was okay with investing in another company that was so similar to one. Ooh. Right. Cause the other one was being taken off the plane. Board. Right. $3.9 billion deal, $18 per share and assumption of debt is the way this all looks. One medical went public for $14 per share. It went up to about 58, $59 a share in early 2021. And then saw most of its value deleted, fell down to around $10 per share before this transaction closed up about 70% or so. Last time I checked on Thursday, that's the rough take. Natasha's right. The losses that one medical puts up were problematic for its scale. They are not problematic for a company of Amazon scale. Uh, okay, I guess. Feels like a good deal for one medical. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, I want to share one more take because no one has responded to my tweet about it yet. And I want to get your take. Does this feel like Apple getting into BNPL, Amazon getting into healthcare? Basically, these companies that can afford to get into low margin businesses going into them and kind of disrupting Ooh. them? Or am I off I there? I thought of it that way. I feel like the Apple move into BNPL felt a little more logical because it already enabled <laughs> payments through wallet and Apple Pay and all that. Yeah. So I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I think the comparison for Apple getting into BNPL would be Amazon getting into BNPL because the cognate for Apple Pay and Amazon is called Amazon Pay. You know, yeah. I guess this would be like if Amazon launched a BNPL service, we would expect Apple to buy one medical. No. But in the case of Amazon, they did do that joint effort with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan that went nowhere. They also bought PillPack in 2018 for a round of billing. Yeah. So they've been tinkering here. I think this is just Tam. Like Amazon needs to keep growing. AWS yeah. provided a lot of cover for a slowing e-commerce business. The COVID bump is over. You got to grow somewhere. Why not get into the biggest economy in the United States, which is healthcare? We. Yeah. I'm cynical about this. I don't like it. And I wish we had a functioning antitrust part of government. But let's move on to small companies. Yay! <laughs> this is why I love working with you guys. <laughs> so just like we are all Whole Foods customers, Amazon Prime members, and former or current One Medical customers, we're also all <laughs> former Crunchbase employees because we're all apparently the exact same person. And Crunchbase this week, Marianne, had some news. Yeah, yeah. So Crunchbase uh, raised $50 million in a Series D round of funding. Crunchbase over the years has evolved quite a bit, actually. And for those who don't realize, it was actually started by the same individual who got TechCrunch off the ground, and that's Michael Arrington. And he kind of did his just a side project, you know, just to keep track of the different companies, I think, that TechCrunch was covering. And it just evolved into this database of startups. And it is now not just a database, but now it's being marketed as a sales prospecting tool. And apparently it's not it's not doing too badly. 75 million unique visitors annually recently surpassed 60,000 paying customers, I think half of which were Fortune 500 companies is what they said. And they actually divulged some numbers. CEO Jagger McConnell, we plan to 
double our business-to-business software ARR this year, ending around $38 million in ARR just for this customer segment. Now, that's pretty impressive. And, and as Alex alluded to, we are all former Crunchbase news reporters, so we have to disclose that. We do have, at least some of us, have a vested interest in how Crunchbase does. So, of course, we were pretty pumped about this news. <laughs> I was really hype about this because I was getting worried. Natasha, I was like, why haven't they raised again? I kept waiting for someone to like text me be like, Hey, do you hear about Crunchbase? You know, and no one ever did. And I did not know this round was coming. I heard nothing about this before it got done, but right. it's, it's a lot of money. It's the biggest round yet to date in the company. And we don't have a new valuation number yet, but I think Crunchbase was worth like what? 150 at the end of its last round. Yeah. So 300, 325, 350, somewhere in there is my guess. This was a series C. Or D? No, it was a D. It was a D. 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 Yeah. I mean, yeah. wow. We so we all left around the series C round, like right after yeah. in the right in that after. three or six month period. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like looking back, I can totally see Crunchbase having made that pivot to pitching itself as like this sales prospecting tool, just based on like how things were organized and just like I mean, our sales team there was badass. I still follow mm-hmm. a lot of them on Twitter, and I think it makes For a sure. lot of sense to be focusing more on that given our current economy. I think the challenge will definitely be, do companies still have budget for something like a crunch base? Like, is it a nice to have or a need to have? I think for so long, it's been this like amazing data source that's known, like, kind of like a household name if you're in tech. But I yeah. do think like that's going to be like the challenge in the series D world. That's like not cash anymore. Like you are a late stage company and you are trying to get closer to an exit. So that is like the pressure that I would want to put on the company now. <laughs> and I don't have shares for, for what it's worth. So oh, I was yeah. very not invested. <laughs> I think Jagger's argument is that even... Even during a downturn, the tool becomes even more valuable because people have an even greater need to close sales and things like that. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I would like to point out one other quick thing. Interestingly, a couple of investors, Omers, Mayfield, and I think Emergence too, are all repeat investors. Yeah. So that's, that's good to know. I'm not that surprised because if someone's going to come in and drop 50 on it, something's going on that, well, not 50, but lead a $50 million aggregate investment, then you probably want to defend your uh, your current ownership percentage. Emergence led the A, it was Mayfield that led the B, and then Omer's led the C. I joined pre-B and left right after the C. So I saw those two cycles and it was really fascinating to see. And I, I know this is like inside baseball for the three of us, but I was reading the Crunchbase News article about this round <laughs> and mm-hmm. I wrote the Crunchbase News article about the last time oh, Crunchbase right. raised. And there was this little disclosure thing that comes up in a little boop, like a little tooltip. And I'm like, hey, it still works. And then some of my original language was still in the disclosures. Oh, and I was yeah. like, oh, my heart. I know. It I, I have on. to say, you know, we had a great time. Crunchbase News, that's where the three of us met. A lot of great memories of our time there and wish the company continued success. Yeah, totally. And Crunchbase News is still a website to watch clearly. I look at them all the time and I just cited them in my robotics panel because they told me that robotics investment is not slowing down contrary to most sectors right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I still read Crunchbase News every day. Um, One last little tiny thing. I know we have to move on. So I went back and pulled the Forbes story on Crunchbase from December of 2021. Ironically written by Rebecca Skutek, who I think now works for, is it TechCrunch.com? Oh my God, what is happening? Small world. Can we all not be the same people? (laughs) But the reason I bring it up is she wrote back then, this was like late 2021, that Crunchbase was on track to reach about $38 million in ARR by the end of the year. Now, this year, they're going to hit $38 million in 
ARR just in their business to business segment. So imagining that the rest of the company makes money via other stuff. I mean, they could end the year add 50 million ARR. So maybe, which yeah. means they're only one, two X away from IPO scale, which could be a year, 18 months. So Crunchbase, if this keeps up, could eventually be an IPO candidate. And given that I did buy <laughs> a lot of my shares, I spent like $22,000 on those motherfuckers. Oh, wow. I'm hoping that they go public so I can put my future children through college. That's the dream. <laughs> or at dream. least get acquired, right? We don't know. But I have so many questions that I want to ask you guys offline because I feel like we can't say as well. <laughs> but like, I just have so many questions. I feel like we haven't like all three talked about it live yet. We just kind of slacked we about haven't. it. Yeah. Um, and then Danny right. made a group chat with us about it. And I was like, what is happening? Yeah, he was like, miss you guys. Check check your DMs. <laughs> oh, Twitter DMs? Oh, I'm like, yeah, I'm like yeah, six yeah. months behind yeah. on this. He All was right. just like, oh, Crunchbase. And I was like, you're right. Yeah, where were you, Danny, when this was getting pitched around and you didn't tell us? Don't show up now, <laughs> Mr. Crichton. All right. Let's move on. The next deal of the week is Archive. Now, this is something a little bit outside of our usual domain. Archive is a Web3 museum curation consumer DAO acquisition vehicle. I think. Yeah. Was that close enough? I'll take it. I'll take it. The way that they describe it on their website is that they're really trying to open access to what a lot of people consider the most exclusive asset class ever made museums. And as someone who just went to the British Museum in London, I am realizing just how much is locked up in these buildings. And it's a really interesting idea of like trying to get members become curators and empowering a community to define what an item is, like what its historical relevance is and rethinking that structure. It also kind of reeks of constant institution DAO a little bit, this idea of everyone owning something. I don't know if ownership of specific goods is part of archive, but that was kind of something I wanted to bring up too. Marianne, your first take. You and I have both been to some museums. We've been to them in various places. Uh, we bought art before. What's your take? I had a hard time wrapping my brain around this concept, honestly. It just, I don't know. Maybe I'm old school. I go to museums. I see them in person. I can't touch things, but it, this concept of, I mean, it's one thing to kind of virtually visit a museum, but this idea of ownership via blockchain. And I don't know, it just kind of went over my head a bit, I have to admit. Okay. So let me try to explain to you what I think this is. Cause I read highest piece. I went to their website. I read the FAQ and I know <laughs> they raised nearly $10 million. In other words, so, you gave it the best shot you could. To well, that's all the information that's out there. Like I read <laughs> every word that I could find that was about this company. I have consumed it. Perfect. Raised $10 million going to build this thing. So there's two questions. One, is it cool to have decentralized museums and collectivized ownership of individual pieces of art? In theory, I think the answer is yes, because what we have seen is historically art being divided down two axes. One is by national ownership, the British Museum, aka the Thieves' Den Guild of the world, and then also private ownership, which means some old rich motherfucker inherited the Picasso, and now it's in his sitting room where he smokes. So neither one of those is super great because they're either confiscatory or they're overly private. So the mm -hmm. idea of having shared assets that are then more accessible. I like that. The curation point, I don't love because everyone's a moron and I like to have people who know what they're talking about help me curate. That's what curation is. Democracy is not called curation and the other way around for a reason. The crypto component to me seems like bullshit. And I think the reason why there's NFTs and blockchain involved is strictly to generate more buying power. Because as mm -hmm. Natasha said with Constitution DAO, because it was a crypto project to buy a copy of the constitution that ultimately failed to work, there was a lot of capital available for it. So to me, that's just a wedge to raise money to buy shit. I'll take it. I'll take it. I think like just even adding on a little bit. So Anita, actually, we asked Anita, who is a co-host on Chain Reaction, our crypto podcast that we love very much. We asked her for her hot take. And she said that she was really drawn to this idea of like, it's one of those use cases where blockchain actually makes sense. And I like your point, Alex, on curation being something that 
you want to happen versus like if everyone does it, does it not defeat the purpose? So this, I think, emphasizes the purpose of crypto. So just quoting the founder, they said that there are things that crypto does really well. Established crypto does a good job of fractionalizing complex financial contracts. It does a good job of ownership, removing ambiguity. You could probably do that without the chain, but usually those other solutions still require human interaction or middlemen. Crypto does access to voting and fractionalization of ownership so well. It is one of those things where ownership and fractionalization do feel pretty innate to museums and these like insanely expensive and important artifacts. So I think that layer is interesting. It is super nascent. So I can't say if it's like going to work or if necessarily it's even a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's interesting. I'm just really skeptical about it playing out. I envision a lot of fighting, a lot of arguments, a lot of tension around it. So I mean, it has promise. I think it's cool. If it worked out, it'd be amazing. But I still am a little bit skeptical, Alex. I mean, the first thing they, oh, never, never apologize for cutting Mm -hmm. me off, Marianne. I talk too much. One of the first things they bought was like the original patents to the ENIAC. I think you pronounce it E-N-I-A-C, which is one of the first computers in the world, if not the. Oh, I um, know that. Cool. But like, we already have the Computer History Museum in California. You can go there. So I don't know really what this is for. If it ends up owning a large portion of artifacts in the world, cool. If not, well, we don't have to care about it. I'm going to condense this next deal of the week. Foresight, F-O-R, site, just raised a whole bucket of money. This caught my attention, guys, because eye health matters, and I've been wearing glasses since uh, second or third grade, and I've always had this lingering fear that I'm going to go blind someday. So whenever eyesight technology comes up, Mary, I see you wearing glasses while we record today, so it matters to you as well. They're building a robot that can treat cataracts. And apparently there are like 28 million cataract surgeries done per year, which is more than I thought. And so we're seeing robots and kind of ML come together as a way to do surgery on human eyes, which terrifies me, but also brings me lots of hope, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, I was intrigued uh, by a couple of things. First of all, love the name of the company, F-O-R site, love the play on words. I think it points, uh, it's Haya again, right? He points out in the article that affluent nations such as the U.S. have 72 eye surgeons per million people, but low-income countries average only 3.7 per million. So I really love that this appears to be part of the company's mission is to help open up accessibility for people all over the world to get this very important surgery and hopefully prevent blindness. I still am not 100% sure how they're planning to get this technology to these countries necessarily. But overall, I agree, it is a little terrifying to think of a robot in my eyeball. But they claim that so with the power of robotics on its side, the company claims to be 10 times more accurate than the human hand. That's Which makes sense to me, actually. Because if you think about eyes and how small and delicate they are, Mm -hmm. and just the sheer vibration that we have in human hands, even if you try to hold them really still, a robot could be much more precise than that. My question is, how do you hold the eyes still? Because I'm a twitchy little boy. And, you know, if you tell me to stop moving my eyes around, I'm going to blink like mad. So that's my concern. (laughs) Same. But Marianne, to your question about pricing, I mean, I think the machine's going to be expensive. The probably treatment isn't because it's done by a robot, which is cheaper than a human. So maybe there's philanthropy that can make these machines accessible to lower income countries as a way to bring, well, actually, you know what? Like we should, we should pause here and just say this. In America, whenever we have a free day of dental care in poorer regions of the United States, they are flooded with people who have lingering and painful dental issues, which goes to show that even in developed countries, and the United States counts as that by most standards, there's an enormous lack of care. And so this probably impacts not only our own backyard, but also the rest of the world too. 
Totally. This story, and shout out to Haya, who's clearly been on a roll this week with interesting mm-hmm. stories. It kind of supports one thing that a investor said during my panel during robotics that is on the site. Helen from Founders X Ventures was basically like, during robotics 1.0, we would see a robotic arm be built and people would try and like use that arm for a million different things. Now we're at a point where the robot needs to be so specialized for a single use case because it helps it get closer to that commercial value, which to me felt kind of contrarian, right? Because it's like, for me, I'm like, oh, why not just build one thing that works for everything? I think mm-hmm. her thing is it's so complex and contracts are so hard to get that if a robot can come out with a focus, with an answer to a problem, it will do well. And at least that's what she's yeah. interested in. So I feel mm-hmm. like Foresight really supports that. And that's kind of cool to see an action. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one last little note about this. We've seen such advances in technology just for eye care in general. Like you used to have to have that little air puff machine, you know, Marianne, that would like Mm -hmm. blast your eye Mm -hmm. and I'm too twitchy. So they have to do like a hundred times to actually make it work on my face and just (laughs) miserable. Don't have to do that anymore. And last time I went to the optometrist, they took out my glasses, they held them from the machine and it scanned them and instantly knew my current prescription and all my numbers. I was like, what? That's cool. So like, this stuff makes me really excited about the future. I think in the next 50 years, we're going to see amazing technology advances, including robotics. Shout out the event. And Natasha, that's all on the site now, right? So if you missed the event, you can watch it all on YouTube recaps. Yes, yes. We will link some of our favorites in the show notes too, if you need help. Yeah. And you got to do it. I didn't get invited to do a panel. I think Brian Heater has decided that I'm not cool enough. <laughs> I think you have too much work to do, Alex. That's the thing. You're, no. you're running TechCrunch Plus. I think people forget. Right. <laughs> we don't. I, I forget sometimes. <laughs> and then I realize, and then I look at Slack and I'm like, oh no, I've made an error. <laughs> All right. Now, speaking about many things going on at once, we have had a surge of new venture capital funds that were announced. So much so, Natasha Mascarenas, that you had to come up with a... I don't know, almost like a top 10 list of recent (laughs) deals. Oh my God, yeah. Basically like the Venture Slack channel was just like press announcement after announcement after Form D filing after tip. And so Christine actually led the charge on a story that was just listing out all these new venture funds that got announced within the past two days. Consider it a dose of optimism, very much, of all the new cash going into the market and something that really supports some of that Q2 2022 coverage we've had, which is that VCs have never had more dry powder. Um, It feels like there's a bunch of new funds. A lot of them are bigger funds, but I can list off some of them if that's interesting. Yeah, please. Okay, cool. So Tribe Capital already has $1.5 billion in AUM. It grabbed $25 million to launch a cryptocurrency incubator program. I'm focusing on some of the smaller announcements because I think that's mm-hmm. the more interesting bit. There's also Fundrise, which is trying to help people invest in real estate with smaller investments. Yep, it's raising a new $1 billion growth equity fund. We saw a crypto asset manager, another crypto fund, planning to raise between $25 million to $30 million. And then there's also B Capital, which closed on... $250 million in capital commitments for its second fund with the emphasis on US and Asia. That's just a few. And there is, I mean, a lot of money. And it just, to me, it feels good to see fresh news being announced. I was also particularly excited to see the Cafe Innovation and Africa Invest 110 million euro fund, which is essentially, as far as I can tell from our coverage, going to Africa. And we've been talking quite a lot about how the African continent's investment pace in 2022 Mm -hmm. is actually, even with the slowdown, on track to beat last year's totals. That's amazing. So fun (laughs) to see another dedicated fund for that region. And then the thing that really blew my mind was the Christie's Ventures thing. (laughs) Not everything has to have a corporate venture capital arm. Wait, tell people about Christie's if they don't know. Oh, Christie's is a steakhouse. And <laughs> okay, it's also a steakhouse, but it is actually in this case is, a, is a, an auction place. So if you want to mm-hmm. go out and compete with minor Saudi royals for mediocre impressionist art, you go to Christie's and you bring a checkbook and a lawyer and then you buy stuff. That's that's fascinating. And also there was another fund investing in like industrial and commercial 3D printing applications. I think what I'm hearing from all of this is that there's a lot more niche funds 
that are emerging. And I think that's notable, right? Because there are investors that are recognizing very specific areas that there's potential and they're doubling down on those areas rather than like, oh, we're just going to back early stage startups and you know that's it. So I do think this is notable that so many of these new funds are very much focused on a specific region or category or sector. That used to be the norm though, Marianne. And then yeah. we saw the rise of the mega fund and and Sequoia and everyone else kind of becoming registered investment advisors, having different capital horizons and larger amounts of money. This feels almost counter narrative to what we've seen in the last 10 years. Totally agree. I feel like I wonder if LPs are more interested in the idea of like a fund manager showing focus, showing that they are going to be committing to one thing a little bit versus trying to spread everything Mm -hmm. in multiple baskets. Mm -hmm. It's also kind of a counter narrative to something that Becca wrote a few weeks ago, I guess maybe last week even, which is that there may be more dry powder than ever before, but emerging fund managers are, you know, not getting too much of that slice. I'm not saying that this necessarily disproves that, but I think like some of these anecdotes make me realize that there is something that emerging fund managers can do right now to close funds. And that is worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll take that. Now we're going to flip the coin from the optimism to the pessimism. And we're going to talk about a company that is shutting down or has shut down or was in the process of shutting down for a long period of time and has now finally done it. There was more Natasha to this story than I thought, but it does appear We've reached the final chapter of the saga, Modzi. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let me like walk us through this as much as possible, but tell me if I'm missing anything. So Modzi, online interior design services startup. In late June, it ceased offering any design services and laid off a ton of its designers. This is actually similar to what it did in the beginning of the pandemic, which we covered as well. They laid off a bunch of their designers and had layoffs and were refocusing in on a few specific services. The hard part about today is that this layoff and pause of services left a lot of customers with actually unfinished renovations and project orders. And Marianne, I know you're getting some renovations done. I feel like that is (laughs) a particularly difficult thing to just have disappear overnight. I mean, it it really is. Like, I mean, I understand that if a company's struggling, no, there's only, I guess... They have to do what they have to do. But if you put yourself in the position of a customer and you're in the middle of a renovation and then you're relying on these services to kind of get you through and then all of a sudden you're not getting callbacks, no one's responding to your emails. I mean, that's it's incredibly frustrating. I feel like with not knowing as much of the inner details as you and Kyle Wiggers, who also covered this, it feels like they could have done a better job in communicating with these customers rather than leave them hanging. Totally. So the final chapter of the saga somewhat, at least for now, is that Motsi actually deleted its Twitter and Facebook, made its Instagram account private, which we noticed and we were kind of like, "Mm, that's Mm. weird. It's because they actually shut down in early July. And I guess we're in mid-July now. But the founder and CEO, Shauna Tellerman, finally confirmed that after we had heard rumors about it for a long time. And so I agree, Marian, I feel like they botched a little bit of this announcement or at least this confirmation. I'm not expecting them to go on all of their social media platforms. But when people are in flux and there's layoffs and people who got laid off are telling us about about the fact that this company has completely winded down, it's kind of like this is the time to probably address what's going on here. Yeah, I'm of two minds about this because on one hand, if I put on my consumer hat, I'm like, you know what? This is kind of bad. The company should have been more upfront and transparent about this, shouldn't have gotten to the point where it wasn't able to finish projects. And then I put on my business hat and I know that when they were doing the layoffs, they were also trying to get acquired. So maybe there was a potential sale they were trying to hold on to. So then it's business as usual in case that closes and then it doesn't. And then you're stuck holding the bag and there's no real good solution. So uh, I'm torn about this. It's just a bummer because I thought it was a cool company, 3D modeling of rooms so you can figure out what's going on. A great name. And it raised like 70 million, somewhere in there. Raised lots of money. It was, I mean, it was a very cool concept. I really thought it was always very, very neat. And I can imagine the disappointment and frustration on the part of the 
founders or executives when an acquisition fell through. And, you know, I I hear you, Alex, and I, I can sympathize with that. But again, I feel like communication is really, really key in these situations. And even just some sort of email or some acknowledgement directly to customers saying, hey, you know, we realize that, you know, there's a pause here or some, just something other than them having to hear from designers, uh-oh, well, I'm not, I'm no longer with the company. You know, that just doesn't feel good. That's not right. Totally. House, another interior services startup, has similarly had a lot of struggles. I'm overdue for checking back up on them, but they had a couple rounds of at least layoffs in some capacity. And that's H-O-U-Z-Z, House? H-O-U-Z-Z. Okay, cool. Yeah. I just want to make sure I was connecting the right dots there. Totally. Alex, I wanted to bring back to one last point about kind of how you were explaining that they've tried to do a bunch of things. It didn't work out. And so it's kind of a bummer. One of those things was actually Modsy Pro, which was this like software as a service plan that they had that they were actually going to bet a lot of the future of the company on. We don't know where that is right now, which is why I'm a little bit like it may have shut down as Modsy as we know it, but it may make a comeback at some point. The pitch is basically like they're going to help interior designers transform the way they do business with, you know, editing and shoppable designs, room scan technology, 3D renderings. Thoughts on that being a comeback? Well, I like it a lot more than hiring in-house designers and having that staff on board. In the world of SaaS, there's two main revenue buckets. There's software or kind of subscription revenues, and then there's services. And traditionally in like enterprise SaaS in particular, services, which is just human hours that you sell to companies to help them get set up with your service or kind of get onboarded or get it tuned, you essentially sell that service at cost, right? Because what you really want is companies to be up and running with your software, generating high margin recurring revenues. Whereas Monzi had the services approach trying to generate margin there, as far as I could tell, and then wanted to pivot towards SaaS. Cool, but you probably can't ride two horses at once. Yeah. Yeah. And they probably made the pivot a little too late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, software businesses are really awesome. And every tech company probably wants to do that, but Monzi was trying to do something different. And I don't want to like say they made a mistake. Doing something different is cool. Like that's why we cover startups because they're doing something theoretically new and, and different. So I guess RIP Modsy, unless it comes back from the dead. Yeah, totally. It's a very TBD kind of story and Kyle is on it. So I'm sure there'll be more. <laughs> well, RIP TBD definitely has to be the name of the show for the day. <laughs> Last theme of the day is geopolitics, as I promised. So two things have happened that have caught our eye. Marianne, one is that Russia is out there with its fine book, writing tickets. And then Natasha, we've also seen that the world of edtech is not done. So let's start, Marianne, with Google and the fine. Yeah. So Russia fined Google $374 million for repeatedly failing to, quote, remove prohibited information, quote, or content related to the country's invasion and a subsequent war in Ukraine. I, I was... I was just like, damn, what nerve. <laughs> it, it, it's bold. So essentially, Marianne, wow. if I understand this, the Russian government is saying because Google didn't take down fair information about its invasion of Ukraine, Google has to cough up 21.1 billion rubles. Yeah. And it, I think it's mainly targeting like content that was on YouTube. And they said that it, it discredited the armed forces of the Russian Federation. I'm like, hmm, maybe yeah. you discredited <laughs> the armed forces of the Russian Federation. Maybe failing to take over Ukraine in three days like you planned was the discrediting of the Russian armed forces. Uh, We shouldn't make light of a very serious topic, but Natasha, we have seen kind of a lot of stuff go on between Google and Russia and also kind of other major technology companies and Russia. Yeah, well, I'm just looking in our show notes right now and a detail that I missed this first time around is that Google's Russia subsidiary filed for bankruptcy last month after Mm -hmm. local regulators froze bank accounts. And to me, that's like, that's huge news. And so I'm kind of bummed that I missed that entirely. But Yeah, um, same. I didn't know that either. It's definitely just like, yeah, more than a reaction. And I think seeing 
number, like this definitely sets it up for realizing how tense things yeah, really absolutely. are. I think the story really like peaked a while ago of like a lot of tech startups have their engineering talent in Ukraine and that it's going to be hard for those companies to conduct their business. But when it comes to censorship and access, I think Google is such an important company to look at and to see it kind of in the limelight again after so long um, is surprising. We've seen other countries become very hostile to, I, I, I almost don't want to say Western, but just global technology companies that are not based inside of their borders. For example, in China, the market is sufficiently large that if you block Google search, there are domestic kind of homegrown competitors to it. In Russia, there's a little bit less of that because there's far fewer people in Russia than China or compared to, say, India, another market that has some digital walls around it. And I'm just kind of curious if Russia really just isn't over leveraging its own view of where it sits in the world and is going to end up pretty cut off, not just from the global economy and global culture, but also from global tech. Totally. It's possible. Yeah, it's not going to be good yeah. for the economy. I feel like I wish we could do it. We should do a whole episode on this at some point and have someone on the ground. Cause I think it's like something that like the voice, actual voice will make such a difference in hearing someone talk about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would love to do more on this. Frankly, if I had my druthers, we would write tons more about what's going on with Russia and technology, because I think that the use of technology and the restriction thereof by governments is going to be one of the most important stories of the next 25 years. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious what dissent looks like in a world where speech is digitally curtailed to the point of being essentially only astroturfing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in a shout out mode today. So I guess I'm going to shout one more, one more thing, which is Danny Crichton, our former co-host writes a really good newsletter called securities. And he gets into some of these conversations time to time. Like I feel like he does the Danny stuff that used to be on the show more. And I know he'd be Mm -hmm. all over this topic. So I definitely recommend reading that. You know, what would be cool is if Danny was on equity. (laughs) If only there was such a world in which that was the case. Uh, (laughs) Let's not tell him. That would be so fun. Danny's brilliant. I mean, if only he wasn't a horrible trader. (laughs) Okay. The last story of the day is all about Preply, Natasha. It brings together Ukraine and also the fact that EdTech is not dead. Yeah. So Preply, which is a language learning startup that unlike Duolingo, which is more asynchronous and on your phone and at your own pace, Preply is betting that tutoring needs to be done with real people live. And this week it was announced that they raised 50 million to grow their platform. It's a series C and the CEO is based in Barcelona, but they at one point had about one third of the company in Ukraine actually when the war kicked off earlier this year. Now about half of that uh, half of those people are still in the country and the rest have left. And some are actually fighting as well, which I thought was pretty wild detail. So I think the story is important for this section, obviously, because raising despite those geopolitical odds as we have in the headline is such a feat. In this market is such a feat. And in EdTech is such a feat. We've seen EdTech stocks really get battered in the public markets. We've seen a lot of people focus more on EdTech internationally and not based in the US. So in some ways it makes sense. But if you add in that layer of the war, I think it's a insane way to get around done. So there's some positives here that we should mention, which is that Europe is seeing a smaller decline in venture capital funding than we're seeing in the United States. Now it had a smaller peak to come down from, but it's not seen as much of a decline. That's good news. Yeah. And I recently saw a headline, I forget who wrote this, but something about how European ed tech is going to be hot this year. Maybe this round kind of fits into a couple of narratives that make a lot of sense. I was really encouraged by this. I'm excited to see cool companies still get funded. But here again, we have a software company with a large human component. And that always makes Mm -hmm. me slightly leery. Um, Marianne, should we talk about this solar panel thing? Are we out of time? I think we're over time, but even just like one sentence, I think this deserves like maybe just one sentence. Mike Butcher did this amazing story about a Ukrainian woman who invented solar for balconies to try to wean Europe off of Russian gas. If you haven't read it, check it out. It's a great piece. Wow. 
it's really cool. And the fact that you can plug solar panels into your house and use that to put power back in the grid is way simpler than I expected. And I thought that was an interesting detail. So yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's on the site. We'll link to it in the show notes, but we have to stop talking and we will be back on Monday and we'll be back on Wednesday and then Friday of next week. No live shows, just recordings. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.